Drawing room over here. You made it. Oh, come on through. Do you fancy drink? What's your tipple? Welcome to The Drawing Room, a space for intimate and surprising conversation. I'm Andy Park. Bryce Courtney was one of the most successful writers Australia has ever known. A high-profile ad executive who turned to fiction late and became synonymous with the term bestseller in this country. But how did a man who grew up struggling and even once said in a letter to his mother that writing to me means mostly slow drudgery and hard work become a force of fiction? His wife, Christine Courtney, is telling his story in a new biography. Bryce Courtney, storyteller, and Christine's my guest in the drawing room. Welcome to you. Come on in and take a seat, Christine. Thanks so much, Andy, for having me. You know that your husband, Bryce, once said an autobiography, question mark. It's a bit too grand, to be honest, for someone like me. So how did you find yourself writing his story instead? Well, I struggled with the notion of doing it, Andy, because Bryce had said he didn't want an autobiography done. I mean, he was, his publisher had begged him to do it. I asked him to do it. And he said, darling, what would be interesting about it? And he said in another interview, well, it's a bit too grand for someone like me. And like Dickens, he said, I want to be remembered for my literary works. And the more I dug and dug and dug into the research about his life and remembering, of course, our years together and having read those precious 141 letters, I realised how much of his life, even more than I had understood before, he'd actually woven into his works. What was Bryce like in your own experience? I mean, away from the history and the success, who, who was your version of your husband? He was a very someone who liked to lead a very quiet and structured life. His friends were his old friends. He was never that interested in being close to new people, if you know what I mean. I mean, he was very gregarious and sociable when he when it was showtime, like, you know, when a book was coming out or he was a lit, at a literary lunch. But aside from that, he did the same thing at the same time every day. His passions were gardening, particularly growing vegetables, taking the dog for a walk, having a glass of wine in the evening, sitting outside with me in the garden, and, of course, he was a rugby fanatic. <laughs> Nothing came, got in the way of a good game of rugby. And he loved reading. He was a very wide reader and he loved listening to music, classical and jazz. But he liked to live a quiet life. Like he, he didn't like really going out even to restaurants that much. He'd, um, he was a homebody. Mm. It's funny because we all like to think we know our spouses, but a biography yeah. goes beyond a personal relationship. What did it feel like filling in the gaps of the man that you obviously knew so well? Well, it felt like huge responsibility because it wasn't just writing about like little old me, little nobody. Like, you know, I'd started writing actually a memoir about having founded an adventure travel company. I was writing about a public figure, a literary legend uh, with thousands, millions of readers. And also you need to be sensitive and dignified because there are many of the people in the book that are still here with us, thankfully. And you realise that you have to make a lot of decisions, which are very tricky, you know, what lines, where do you draw a line in the sand? And, but at the same time, I realised that people would not want to read a book that was vanilla, that was sugar-coated. And Bryce said to Roger Maynard in 2012 in an interview that Roger recorded, he said, whitewashing a family story isn't a story at all. And he also said, if you shake any family cupboard, it rattles like hell. <laughs> but I think, you know, the letters are at the heart of this book. They were really 
the gold for the book. And they were really what made me decide to put my memoir aside and write this book because I thought, firstly, I was in a very u- unique position to tell Bryce's story. Um, and I had talked to many family members and, of course, years with, with Bryce. But these letters meant that the book could in many ways be in Bryce's voice. And I wove his literary war- works into the narrative um, because I didn't want it didn't want it just to be me, you know, psychoanalyzing Bryce Courtney. I mean, that's for someone else. But it's not an academic work. It's my love story to Bryce. But I did put all those years I spent at university, you know, to to work. Um, and Bryce used to say, you know, the muse doesn't come from the heavens and sit on your shoulders. You have to dig the ditches. You have to dig the verbal ditches. And it was so much harder than I thought. And then to elevate it being a good read. After I handed it in, I actually rewrote large swathes of it. And I was researching and writing as I went. And initially, I felt quite relaxed, Andy, because I didn't have a publisher. I was really writing it to give to Bryce's grandchildren, who were quite young when he died. So I was quite relaxed. No one was going to read it after all anyway, were they? (laughs) But once I got a publisher, you know, like the panic set in. Um, But I'm very grateful. I had an extraordinary editor, Rachel Scully, at Penguin Random House, who had worked with Bryce on many books, she had a great sense of him, great great instinct to who he was. And, of course, she was an incredible editor. And I think, you know, we sort of crawled across our stomachs to get across the line to get it published in time for Christmas, as Bryce used to say. My books belong with the chocolates and the socks under the Christmas tree. But it, it's been so lovely, you know, that his readers have been so loyal for what, nearly 10 years since he sadly passed away. And they're so excited about the book. And I hope that it actually does have people realise that they really should try and hold on to their dreams. I mean, it was my dream in the end to finish this book. I did it. Bryce had dreamed of being a storyteller from a small child. He ne- he always held tight to that dream, regardless of the roller coaster of a life that he led from childhood. Yeah, so talk to me about that roller coaster. In his youth, there was this kind of strange contrast between the expectations of success his mother had for him, uh, sort of against the reality of his life, wasn't it? Sure. You know, he grew up an illegitimate child in those times. Um, his mother had mental health problems. She was very poor. She was, uh, you know, living in the to the backdrop of the depression and the war. They lived in very, very, very challenging circumstance. It was heartbreaking, actually, understanding even more from the letters how bad it really was. Then all those expectations upon him, as you've said, and then when he went to the posh boarding school, King Edward VII School in Johannesburg, um, he was suddenly surrounded by privileged and wealthy people, and he had to kind of, he said, camouflage himself so that he never wanted anybody to really know that he'd come from nothing and from nobody. And he said that was really part of the reason why I think he he reinvigorated his natural gift of storytelling and he never stopped. And um, what was fascinating, though, Andy, was to discover that his grandfather, Robert Bryce Greer, was a great storyteller and someone, by the way, who changed his stories often as he told them, as Bryce did. And then his cousin, Pamela, wrote under the name Lewin Shire Greer, where she grew up at Lewin Shire, where Bryce worked down the mines. His mother wrote poetry. His uh, his other uncle, uh, uh, not one of his un- uncles, um, his father's uh, 
brother was a great storyteller, and his own father, Arthur Ryder, was known as the raconteur of Natal. So he was surrounded by storytellers. And then, of course, Bryce dreamed of attending university in London. That's obviously not a cheap proposition uh, when you live in South Africa. So mm. what? tell me more about him going down the copper mines, an incredible undertaking considering the it risks. It really was. But, you know, I think it was known in Africa at the time that there was money to be made on the copper belt. And Ian Finlay, as you know, a very well-known journalist uh, who met Bryce at the mines, I mean, he'd gone there with his mate Noel to earn some money and he wrote about it in, in his own book. Um, and Bryce had got a job after school uh, spraying pests on a citrus farm, but that was just a complete dead end. And he realised then and there he didn't want to become a learner farmer as his friend who'd been, whom he'd been at school with, you know, hoped he would be. So he um, made his way up to the copper belt but then the reality struck him as well that he had to learn to be a grizzly man to set the explosives underground. And he had many accidents, many near misses, and then there was one fateful day when he was very nearly blown to pieces. And he, in the end, didn't make as much money as he'd hoped. Um, and then in the middle of it, he had he was conscripted into the Rhodesia Regiment. and um, But he did scrape just enough to get on that plane and go to London. But he... He lived, you know, in in digs, you know, with a in boarding houses, in hostels with a charwoman who'd make his tea. Uh, he was often sick. He had he was born with a delicate chest. And remember, London was not, you know, was that was 1956. Um, you know, he it was still not long out of the shadows of the Second World War. It wasn't the place we know London today. Um, and he must have been quite lonely, although he'd really had such he'd lived with loneliness all his life. I mean, he he only was with his mother for periods in his life. Um, he didn't see a lot of his sister, even as they were growing up. He was used to being alone, but he always took solace, as he did from childhood, in reading and writing. And then later, of course, in London, he met the beautiful Australian woman, a very sophisticated Australian woman called Benita Solomon, who became his wife and the mother of his three children. On ABCRN, I'm Andy Park. Christine Courtney is my guest in the drawing room. We're talking about her biography of her late husband, Bryce. I mean, Bryce was hugely successful in advertising. What did it mean for the rest of his life? I mean, he, he had those sort of long working hours in an industry that's probably best represented by madmen, you could say. Well, that's right. And uh, he certainly was a part of that, although as you would have known, it was a golden period in advertising. Um, and they were in the, in the period of time when there was huge cultural change going on throughout the world. But he always thought it was a great training to be a writer because, as he said, every advertisement is a story and you have to write to a deadline. And so um, I think he thought it was a wonderful training ground. But every day he'd wake up and say, another day is gone when I haven't been able to write the books that I have spinning around in my head. You know, he was 52 when he sat down and started to write The Power of One. Is, is it true um, that that was just intended to be practice? Well, he always said it was. He he said that he'd done all this research of famous writers um, and that showed, told him that they became successful often after their third, fourth or fifth book. And when he wrote it, um, he used it as a doorstop. Um, but it was his future daughter-in-law, Anne, now married, of course, to Brett, 
his eldest son, who said, Pa, this is really great. You should get this published. Um, but he also felt he was very lucky because he didn't know anything about the publishing world. He always thought he was very lucky that it was picked up. Like he said, there's so many great books that hit the dust and never came to light. Um, but, you know, it, it was one of those incredible books. But then the fear really set him with Bryce because he didn't want to be, you know, a one-book wonder. He was always nervous before every book came out that his readers would would um, would still want to write, you know, read his next book. Of course, not long after the publication of The Power of One, Bryce's son Damon passed away. Must have been a, a terribly complicated time for him. It was. It was just. It was just the worst and most devastating experience of his life. It's unimaginable to lose a child. And, you know, the dichotomy of having this massive international success, but the spectre of his beloved son dying and in terribly tragic and, and appalling circumstances in the sense of the nature of the disease that, you know, he'd, he'd acquired, medically acquired HIV from blood transfusions, having been born a haemophiliac. And so um, he never got over it. In fact, he said as the years went by, it got worse. And I think I used to say, how do you cope with that, you know, as a mother that I am myself? And he said, well, he used to see this little box, a green box with the lid on it. And on April 1st every year, which was April 1st, as most people realise when Damon passed away, he said he'd take the lid off and then he'd confront the loss. Um, but he'd often wake up sobbing in the middle of the night. Um, and uh, writing April Fool's Day after he wrote Tandia, the, sec the sequel to, to uh, The Power of One, he said was the most difficult book he ever wrote. There were letters where he just would say to his sister Rosemary or his mother, I don't know if I can finish this. It's so terribly difficult. Um, and... Uh, I don't think he actually ever read, ever read it after he wrote it. Not that he did actually read his books after he'd written them, but I think it was just too just too painful. Um, but I think that that experience enabled him to feel a lot of empathy for people going through enormous traumas, not just what he'd had growing up, but through loss and grief and and other difficult circumstances. And I think that's one reason why he was so successful, Andy, because he really had great empathy and people felt that when he was talking to them, they were the only person in the room and he made them feel special. He made them feel that they were heard and acknowledged. And I think his connection with his readers is astonishing. I mean, how many writers have that relationship with their readers? And just speaking about confronting traumas, growing up in South Africa meant experiencing mm. apartheid. What yes. impact did that have on his own choices in life? I think like most young people growing up, it's, you don't know anything else. So as he was growing up, he was aware of it in so many ways, but he was too young to sort of really, I think, integrate it and intellectualise it. But as the years went on and he had experience, for example, of, of the authorities shutting down his his lessons for Africans that he started when he was at Hez, King Edward VII School in Johannesburg, it really began to stick in his throat and he, this anger, this rage kind of started to grow. And I think he felt afraid about living there. He knew his, there would, the knock on the door would come when he would be arrested 
uh, for his views, um, which didn't sit well with the regime. And in fact, in an interview he did, I think it was with the Los Angeles Times after the Power of One came out, he said, I wanted people to not just know about apartheid, I wanted them to feel what it was really like for the African communities. And in that sense, it was a real statement against that regime which marginalised and brutalised those people's lives for so long. Speaking about confronting traumas, uh, certainly, uh, obviously, Bryce had that uh, wash-up, if you like, of his time growing up in South Africa, the death of Damon. But for you as well, Christine, confronting your own grief of, of losing Bryce, I imagine an element of that is about time healing that, but also in actions you take. I mean, writing this book, is that your way of confronting that grief? It's funny, you know, Andy, when I started writing it, really I just was writing this own memoir, and in the middle of it I also edited a friend's memoir who lives in Kenya. I wrote this essay, really, our first chapter, not thinking I was going to write a memoir of Bryce's life, but as I began, made the decision to write the memoir after finding the box of letters in the garage. As I went on, I realised how much, you know, unresolved grief I had. And I think I tried to push it aside because a few days before Bryce died, I said to him, you know, how can I imagine life without, you know, what will I do? I was being really pathetic, I suppose. And he said, darling, no tears. I want you to embrace the gift of life just as I have. So I think I tried to do that. But in doing so, I didn't process my grief fully. But So the writing has been cathartic. It's also been uplifting because it's reminded me of what a passion and a zest for life Bryce had. And he's unfailing positivity, whatever was going on. And he, he really, more than anyone I've ever met, really got it, how precious and brief life is and how it can be snatched from you in a moment. And if people had a dream, he'd say, um, you mustn't you mustn't let go of that dream. And if people were writing a book and they'd say, oh, you know, I've been at it for a few years, and he'd say, what's wrong with you? You know, get up earlier, get up at 3 a.m. and finish it, for God's sake. Um, and he would have said the same to me every now and again. I'd say, oh, I can't do this, or what will this person say, or what that, will that person say, or, oh, I don't know about something, or you said this and then you said something different. I can't get the dots, you know, to all add up. And he would just say, darling, you'll work it out. Just try harder. Just dig deeper like I always did. And that's what I tried to do. Yeah, push through the drudgery and hard work. Well, Christine... Oh, yeah. could... <laughs> There's a lot of suffering involved in writing a book. You've probably written one yourself. And uh, I always thought I understood what it took, having watched Bryce write 21 books in... Uh, 21 books in 23 years. But, you know, this is my love story to Bryce. And now I just hope people enjoy reading it. Christine, it's been wonderful to hear your recollections of your late husband and congratulations on this book. Thank you, Andy, so much. It's been lovely chatting with you. Christine Courtney has been my guest in the drawing room and Bryce Courtney, storyteller, is out now through Penguin Random House. You've been listening to a podcast of The Drawing Room with me, Andy Park. For more great conversations, search for The Drawing Room on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.